turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you, sir. And at five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. on your basic Tuesday, the 16th of June, CR here to welcome you into the program. And uh, trust that you had a great uh, great weekend here. And, uh, well, a day late wishing you that, I guess, huh? I want to say, by the way, at the start of the program, a hearty thank you to all of our listeners who participated in our campaign with um, our effort to provide food, water, and emergency relief COVID-19 supplies in Africa in partnership with Cross. Wow. Um, you guys did a phenomenal job, and uh, your your graciousness and kindness and compassion to folks um, in a far less worse situation than ours, um, is certainly notable. And um, just wanted to say personally, I wish I could say to every one of you personally, uh, and, and face-to-face thank you, but the radio will have to survive for the moment. But again, a hearty thanks yous to all of you. Yes, we reached our goal in the 11th hour and 59th second. We managed to um, to actually provide for all 400 children. So great partnership and uh, our thanks to you for uh, caring and giving and supporting, especially recognizing that many of you do so quite sacrificially, particularly during these challenging times. Speaking of challenging times, we're going to be talking a little bit later on in tonight's program with um, California Senator Brian Dolly, who's got the update for us on Senate Bill 54, which also masquerades as an attempt to create a budget for the state of California. Um, a budget that's facing a deficit of $54 billion, with a B, dollars, and proposes a $9 billion tax increase. Look out, it's coming. We'll talk to Senator Dolly about that a little bit later on in the program. But I want to bring it even closer to home as we talk about budget shortfalls, economic struggles. Yes, we're beginning to see some improvement. Uh, we saw um, spending up by 17% month over month from April to May with people getting back out again and and beginning to um, do some retail spending. That certainly is encouraging news. But we still recognize that there are 13, 14 million Americans that are currently unemployed, and that number will continue unabated, no doubt, for a good period of time. And, And sadly, some of the organizations that you would think would be first and foremost charged with trying to protect workers that are most vulnerable are not necessarily doing the best job. And we're going to get a report now from Vincent Vernuccio, who is the senior fellow at the Makinov Center for Public Policy, which is a research and educational institute located in Michigan. Vincent is a labor law expert and joins us now to talk about something that I would have thought Vincent would have been a given, and that is during a time of economic crisis, when people are struggling to put food on the table and keep the roof over their heads, 
At the very least, you would think that unions across the nation would say, hey, guys, don't worry about union dues. We know you need the money. Oftentimes, even if someone's still working, there's a spouse in the house that is not. And so economic challenges to go around everywhere. But while some unions have made an effort, most notably, it sounds like a larger percentile are just kind of treating this as business as usual. What's going on? That's right. So uh, two of the senior congressmen on the House Education and Labor Committee, uh, Congressman Tim Wahlberg and Virginia Fox, wrote a letter to the top union officials in America saying, hey, are you guys collecting dues from your members that aren't working right now? Uh, Because unfortunately, there have been some reports that some unions are trying to lean on unemployed members to get them to pay dues even when they don't have a job. Uh, You know, I I would think at at the very most you would say, hey, um, we don't expect anybody to pay union dues right now. Most of that money kind of just sits off in a in a collective anyway. But it, it's one thing to say to somebody who's still working, but perhaps struggling because, as I suggest, oftentimes uh, there's been a loss of employment of somebody in the house, and so they're facing some challenges or maybe having to help out a, a family member, and so money is tight. So it would be one thing to say to a working union member, don't worry about your union dues for the rest of the year. But to expect people that are unemployed to continue to pay their union dues, I mean, I, that, that, that's criminal. That's right. So, um, so that's the, the, the heart of the letter is to find out what's going on because there are reports of these unions or some unions actually leaning on their unemployed members. Now, credit where credit's due, there are other unions that are doing the right thing and are trying to help their members have suspended any sort of dues collection and are trying to go out of their way to make sure their members are taken care of. But unfortunately, you are hearing these reports that others are doing the opposite and uh, trying to get dues from unemployed members, and that is what uh, Congressman Fox and Congressman Wahlberg are trying to find out now with their letters to the AFL-CIO, Unite Here, and uh, several other unions. Is there any teeth in some of the laws that have been passed, and I'm thinking specifically of a, a pretty spectacular Supreme Court case that address the issue of the volunteerness of union dues and and whether or not a case like uh, Janice versus Axme would be beneficial at all? Is there is there the capacity under the law to lean on that, to be able to say to these unions that have not voluntarily given their members a little bit of a break here to say, you guys got no choice? Well, that's a really interesting thing, and I'm, Greg, I'm really glad you brought it up, Janice versus AFSCME, because in the last month there's been two very interesting developments with the case. And if you're listeners, I'm sure they're familiar with it, but in a nutshell, Janice versus AFSCME said that everything that government unions do is inherently political, and because it's political, public employees have a right to choose whether or not to pay the union. Essentially, it gave right to work to public employees across the country. And as you know, Greg, what right to work means is that a union can't get a worker fired for not paying them. But the decision actually went even further and said that public employees have a right to make sure they're 
dues are respected, their choice, excuse me, their choice is respected, and it asks for something called evidence of affirmative consent. So essentially it said that if a public employee wants to be a union member, they can, but the employer needs evidence from the employee. The employee has to opt in after being informed of their rights. And the Texas Attorney General just a few weeks ago actually issued an opinion saying that all public employees in his state should have should stop paying dues, can't be charged dues anymore, taken out of their paychecks and given to the unions, unless those employers get evidence of affirmative consent. Essentially, the employee would have to tell the employer, yeah, I want to pay dues and um, be informed of their rights, and then dues would continue out of their paycheck. But it couldn't go on like it is today, where the employee has to take the steps to opt out. They would have to opt in. And certainly a lot of this information, um, I, I would wonder how many typical union members are even aware of any of this. Certainly the union, uh, unless they were compelled to do so, is not going to let them know that they have options, are they? Uh, well, it's the, actually the interesting thing, I mean, especially out in California and several other states, um, they have legis- union-friendly legislators have actually passed laws forbidding employers from telling their employees about their rights under the Janus case. So not (laughs) only are unions not telling them, but law forbids the employer from telling them. And not only that, some of those same laws actually give unions what's known as a captive audience meeting with new employees, essentially think a timeshare presentation on steroids when you start your job for the union to make their sales pitch. So it is incredibly one-sided, and I think that's one of the reasons why Justice Alito uh, wrote in the Janus case that employers need evidence of affirmative consent, knowing evidence of affirmative consent, so that public employees will be informed of their rights and will have the ability to say, yeah, I want to pay the union, and then have the ability periodically to re-up if they want to. That is why this opt-in provision in Janus is so important in protecting the First Amendment rights of public employees across the country. And certainly, uh, you know, at the end of the day, to your point, Vincent, the, the irony of it that we're, we're trying to protect the rights of union members to exercise fully their rights, but it seems as if there are dynamics here in the system that are set up to try and prevent them from being aware what their rights are. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be very concerned about uh, protecting my First Amendment right to freedom of speech if I didn't know such a thing existed. And all of the onus was on me to go and find out. And, and I, I would suspect that's kind of a, a, a mile too far or a road too far for a lot of people. Again, you know, it's not that, you know, we're trying to say, well, ignorance of the law is no excuse. But <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, if if nobody's voluntarily giving you the information, that really puts the employee at a tremendous disadvantage, does it not? You know, it, it does, and that's why um, General Paxton's Texas opinion on the heels of um, Attorney General Clarkson's opinion in Alaska is so important because it says that public employees should be told of their rights and, they, and their public employers should not take dues out 
until public employees are told of their rights and they give affirmative consent. And not only that, but because it's a waiver of their First Amendment rights, that that consent can expire. And basically, just like you renew your car insurance, your health insurance, you have open enrollment at work, you should have the same thing for union dues where that gets periodically renewed. Uh, both uh, the Alaska Attorney General and the Texas Attorney General uh, agree that there has to be that periodic renewal of the opt-in. You know, if anything, the, the last uh, couple of months here has taught us, and that is that we need a significant effort to try and do a better job at protecting the the hardworking employees of this country. And, uh, and, and, and sadly, some of those that are most notably charged with doing that, everybody from Congress to certainly unions seem to be failing miserably at that job. Vincent, we appreciate the insights on this, and uh, thank you so much for keeping us posted. Vincent Vernuccio, again, Senior Fellow at the Nagadov Center for Public Policy. All right, 517, let's turn a corner here to help you get around that corner. We're going to get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Money's tight, we know that. And certainly Washington, D.C. is doing what it can to try and close a bit of the gap. But we're going we're gonna to see some tough times here. Everything from local cities, municipalities, to uh, counties, states, all going through challenging economic times. And sadly, in a state like California, well, when times get tough, they raise taxes. Let's get some insights into what seems to be nothing more than a bit of a sham window dressing bill in the form of SB 74. Your members of the California state legislature, not very hard at work, at least some of them. Joining me now with some insights as to this dog and pony show is California State Senator Brian Dolly, who represents the 1st Senate District. And, uh, Senator, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Absolutely. How are you, Craig? I'm good. Uh, although i got to tell you, I, quite candidly, as a lifelong resident and taxpayer in this state, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated. I mean, I, I recognize. I get it. Times are tough for all of us. We're all trying to kind of figure out what um, the the post-COVID-19 economy is going to look like for all of us. And certainly, uh, you know, we could all use a little help these days. But gee whiz, taking a look at what is inside of this Senate Bill 74, uh, I mean, if I didn't know better, if it wasn't coming from California, I'd think this was an item off of the onion. But here it is, um, putting together yeah. a budget deficit that is projected to be up toward $54 billion, and they're continuing, your colleagues are on the Democrat side, to spend money in some unbelievable arenas. Well, let me just share with you first, uh, uh, this is a smoke and mirrors budget. At the end of the day, we have to do, constitutionally, they have to pass a budget by the 15th, and, you know, we, we did the, we met the constitutional deadline, but... $54 $54 billion is not the right number. It, let me share with you that in January, the governor put out a budget that uh, was $14 billion more than what we had last year. So this, so it's really not, and that's calculated in to this year's May revise. So it would be like me telling you, 
hey, I'm going to give you $5,000 raise in January, but then in, then in March, I actually gave you a $1,000 raise, and then you said that you got a $4,000 cut. Well, really, you got a $1,000 raise. So let's, let's start comparing apples to apples. That's number one. This, this $54 billion isn't the real number. We don't know what that number is. And we're going to get some money from the federal government coming back under the state of emergency. I've asked tw- I'm on the budget committee. I've asked several times what that number is. Nobody can tell you. But here's the ironic thing. Even though we don't have good numbers, the legislature, which this budget was made up by four or five people. It wasn't uh, uh, the whole membership of the legislature. We had very little input. We got to ask some questions, but we never got answers. $9 billion over the next three years, $4.4 billion in new taxes. Now, if you recall during the last recession, which was 2008 and, and into 2012, we passed prop where the people of the state tax themselves by a Proposition 30, which was supposed to help education. And then it was ratified two years later by Proposition 55, which gave us the rainy day fund. Thank God we have that. It was mandatory that we put a percentage of our budget into the rainy day fund, which we have available to us. So the deadline for taxes, because of COVID, got extended. So we really don't know what the income is going to come in for California until the 15th of uh, this month, I believe, uh, or July. I'm excuse me. July 15th is the time that we have to pay our taxes because many people didn't pay their taxes in April like we normally do. So, but... At the same time, this budget has 70 positions for the high-speed rail uh, at $191,000 position, which is a boondoggle. We should, we should be taking that money and putting it towards uh, schools and roads and the things that uh, actually make this economy work and the things that we actually need instead of a train that goes to nowhere. Well, not only that, but but the notion, and I understand part of the proposed budget also includes shelling out another $5 million to buy a state park. And while I'm thrilled that California leads the example um, in, in preservation of land and making access to uh, uh, nature here to uh, California residents and visitors, uh, it's a wonderful thing. But but really and truly, even at a price tag of five million dollars, and you know when you talk about billions worth, five million sounds like chump change, Senator. But at the end of the day, I, ha- I just have to wonder whether or not the future fiscal health of California can be entrusted into the California State Legislature and this governor given the propensity toward just spending like uh, there's no tomorrow and not recognizing the fact that we've got some tough times here. We're going to be in tough times for no doubt a good stretch and looking into the future, trying to close budget gaps by increasing taxes just seems to be a bridge too far. Well, I will 100% agree with you. I am one of the few legislators who actually does a payroll every two weeks. We have a business. We're farmers. My wife and I, we run a business, and we, we have employees. There's not very many in the legislature that could say they do that. And I will share with you that you know, this budget also has $596 million to expand health care to illegal immigrants, $65 million to expand earned income tax credits to illegal immigrants, $10 million for business grants for illegal immigrants. Look, I'm in business. COVID has affected all kinds of businesses in California. They've laid, we know unemployment is very high. Why don't we do something for the businesses of California that have been here for decades and generations, quite frankly, doing a good job? You cannot have a, a public servant, a, a, a cop, a firefighter, 
uh, in-home health care, anything until a private business and the people who work for those private businesses pay a tax first. Those are the people we should be caring about. COVID has definitely hurt them, no doubt, and that's where our priority should be. We should not be adding more taxes to them. They've already put a rainy day fund in place, and at the end of the day, those are the people that are going to dig us out of it. We need to streamline uh, regulations and give them some security so that they can get back on their feet, hire their people, and get this economy going in, this, in the right direction. There's plenty of opportunities in California. This is a great state. It's very diverse. We have agriculture. We have the tech industry. We have, we have pictures. We have infrastructure like no other state. This is the greatest place in the world to live. We just have some people that don't know how to operate it very well. We need to get them back on track. And quite frankly, we need to vote them out. We need to put people in office that know how to run a business. And this place will be prosperous. And so for, for the time I've been here, They've done nothing but disrespect the people who pay the bill, and that's private industry business owners and the people that work for them that pay for the services that we need in California. Are you anticipating this is going to be a knockdown, drag-out battle between the two aisles and trying to craft a, an actual workable budget that Californians can live with and that California business can survive with? I think what you're going to see is you're going to see trailer bills, which are going to come through. That's where the meat of this, this budget is going to happen. I think it's going to be made up by three or four, probably the speaker, the pro tem, and the governor, and maybe the budget chairs. And you're going to see them try to get more money from the federal government, and it's going to be taking care of their friends, and they're going to punish business again in California. That's what I think will happen. I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, there was $22 million to enforce uh, Assembly Bill 5, which – it went after independent contractors. Look, independent contractors pay taxes, and this is Uber drivers and, and the gig economy that, that they don't like. They want to unionize them. They want to make them employees. So this this is a very unfriendly the, – the terms of this bill that was put together is unfriendly to business. And we know that uh, if you give business security and you give them the opportunity to, to expand, and that was, that's what grows our economy. So I think you're going to see them – try to figure out how they can get more money from the federal government, which who's the federal government? It's us. At the end of the day, uh, you know, my daughter, who's 10, is very much in debt because of all the borrowing that we're doing. And they're just printing money back there. And at some point, it's just paper. There has to be something backed by it. And we're going to see inflation at some point, And that's going to be tough. On a, We're going to see the rise of interest rates. And, and that, will, that will happen if we continue to just print money at the federal level. We don't have that opportunity here in California to print money. So this is going to be interesting. They're going to raise taxes, and they're going to continue to suppress business, which is unfortunate for California because we can grow our way out of this, just give us some freedom to do it with the business climate. There were a lot of us, you make reference to to AB5, there were a lot of us that fought that thing tooth and nail, believing that it was going to have a very significant dilatorious impact on um, people that choose to work as jobbers or, or you know, uh, like to work freelance and so forth. And, of course, right now, under this current economy, uh, you're going to be a spike in that. There may be a family where there were two workers and now there's only one. And so the second person, unable to secure full-time employment, is looking to make Ed's meet by picking up something here and there. And it seems to me as if AB5 is going to be a major roadblock. Any chance of that thing getting reconsidered and taken off the books? Well, they've been picking picking away at just picking their friends. And, you know, they, some of the stuff has uh, – they're, they're doing something for musicians. and but the, but the Uber driver and the Lyft driver and the DoorDash driver and, 
and you know the the they did do a car they're doing carve out so it's it's the mother may I system it's socialism that, uh, on steroids where they're not look if you're if you want to choose to be an independent contractor it doesn't matter what you should do you should exempt you and allow you to have some freedom but it's it's the trying to push more people into uh, being employed by employers and, and it's just wrong I mean there's a lot of us I was one of them I choose to want to my, do my own business and so. Uh, AB5, we have trucks, we're in the trucking business, so AB5 affects uh, us getting our crops out. We have to now uh, work around that, uh, and that's unfortunate. Some people want to be in business for themselves, and they should be. Is there some abuses? Sure. There's been abuses going on for a long time. But let's go after those bad actors, not the people who are, are legitimately trying to make a, a living being an independent contractor. And it's a lot of opportunities for the mother who wants to go out and drive Uber for a couple hours and pick up some extra money to, uh, you know, do whatever they want with it. And as you point out, we have laws in place that can protect workers if there is an abuse taking place. Just enforce the laws. Senator, I appreciate your time, and I know it's going to be an uphill battle. We appreciate knowing that there are a handful of people in Sacramento like yourself that are willing to uh, to do the due diligence and understand what real stewardship means and uh, to face the, the tough questions and to try to come up with some workable solutions that will help Californians, all Californians, and not just punish businesses. There's California Senator Brian Dolly representing the 1st Senate District here in Northern California. All right, let's take a time out, and we're going to head over to the KFAX Traffic Center to get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. My next guest is so bored with life, really nothing going on of any significant import that he's considering taking a global tour around the world for the next six months just to stay busy. <laughs> Joining me now, boy, was that delivered tongue-in-cheek. Joining me now is Brad Dake, his constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, um, who clearly has got to be uh, the busiest person on the planet at the moment, given everything that's going on. And, and Counselor, welcome back from your uh, protracted visit to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wish I had the time to take those kind of trips. But, Tell uh, me about yeah, it. Boy, got... who who would who would have guessed with COVID-19 alone that you would be so incredibly busy? Let's get down to cases. Uh, first off, and I, I want to talk about what's going on both in, uh, in Salinas as well as in Washington State. Uh, Washington State, interesting because we have our own struggles here in the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, I was talking um, with a pastor the other day about reaching out to you because of his level of frustration of um, the tough restrictions on church gatherings in Santa Clara County. Give us an update. What have you been up to in Washington? Yes. Um, Washington State has been very problematic. And uh, so what we've done is we have filed a lawsuit in Washington State on behalf of the churches, and one of the problems we saw was that uh, they were allowing uh, movie theaters to have a, a higher occupancy uh, than churches. Uh, they were allowing, uh, you know, other stores, you know, bowling alleys and all kinds of things to open and have, you know, a higher occupancy than, than, uh, than religious institutions. So we went ahead and we filed this lawsuit because it's one thing to have everything and everyone shut down. Uh, it's another thing to 
say, everyone get off the bus, but not you church churches. You have to stay. We're going to treat you differently. And that's what we're facing in Washington State. We filed a very important lawsuit in federal court, and we're going to move ahead with it um, on behalf of all the churches and synagogues there in the state of Washington. Wow. And and why this big discrepancy? I mean, it would seem to me a gathering is a gathering. And, and uh, if, if you're in seats all facing forward, shouldn't the same rules and regulations that apply to a movie theater apply to a church? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the real problem here is because the only difference is one secular, and they're all sitting there, you know, watching and listening in a, fixed, you know, in a place for a period of time. And it's the same for a church, with the church, but the church is religious, so it's it's very problematic. And uh, one can only help but wonder, you know, how they would treat a a church, an old uh, movie theater that's being used by a church, um, except that they would not allow the, the meeting, or allow only or, uh, much many more uh, fewer people, much uh, fewer people than uh, if it was actually showing a, a movie. So it's just, it's very illogical. There's no scientific, biological, rational basis except just just discriminatory attitudes towards people of faith. Remarkable. Well, keep us posted on that one. Now, there's another case closer to home that I'm sure is going to get uh, quite interesting. And we talked about this. Uh, we talked to this uh, about this uh, in not all that distant future. Memory serves me right. This is the case of Harvest New Harvest Christian Fellowship down in Salinas. Um, where after years of being downtown on Main Street and experiencing some growth, finally got to the point where they said, we need more space. And so they went out and they purchased a new building on the main drag there and uh, had uh, plans in place to uh, to expand their ministry in an area that, quite frankly, like a lot of downtowns in older communities, is kind of, you know, dying off a little bit. And I understand the desire of local municipalities to try and revitalize a downtown. But it would seem to me revitalization means that we have vibrant life, people coming and going and things going on in the downtown area as opposed to just a lot of vacant buildings. But apparently the city of Salinas has got a slightly different angle to that notion of vibrant. And I guess part of it all spins on something called revenue, tax revenue. Tell us about what's going on. Yes, this church, Harvest, is one that uh, was already in downtown. It's this little old, you know, downtown area. And they decided they wanted to move across the street where they'd have more space. So they bought uh, the space across the, the street, the, the two-story building. And they were all excited about it and going to move in. And But the city said, oh, no, no, we, we don't want you there because we, uh, we want the downtown to be fun, uh, entertaining and fun and drawing in tourists and and uh, churches aren't fun. Um, and so it's like, well, we said, well, wait a minute, there's a post office here in the downtown. That's not fun. And there's uh, another business here that's not entertainment. And But the real bottom line, but they have a movie theater. No problem with that. Um, but they're not allowing people to have a place to come together and worship. And the church is open to everyone. And they have other activities during the week and things going on. Uh, so it, it's just... It's just uh, a discriminatory double standard, and uh, that they just basically don't want religion in the downtown. That's really what they're saying. Uh, so we filed a lawsuit, and we argued it, and uh, the lower court, uh, federal judge, 
uh, ruled in favor of the city and and said they they what they're doing is, is fine. They're uh, you know they have their you know their desire to, to have a fun a fun downtown. And uh, the, that's, that judge took it to the and thinker. Well, we're uh, filing an appeal for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act and Institutionalized Persons Act uh, is a very important federal legislation that, in addition to the Constitution, this legislation specifically says, local governments, you can't keep out a church from someplace unless you have a compelling state interest and you can show that your restriction is narrowly tailored to the most least restrictive means necessary for furthering that compelling state interest. We're very confident that on appeal or before the Supreme Court that this case will be reversed. You know, they 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 must have gone to school and learned how to handle churches in San Leandro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> only only Brad and Pastor Gary Mortera will get that joke. But it's it's yeah. shameful that they don't recognize. And I was going to mention it uh, just before you did uh, the the religious land use uh, protection that that specifically states that they can't do things like this, that you just can't say to a church, we don't want you here, we're not going to allow you to build or meet or gather or whatever, simply because they feel as if somehow it's going to impinge upon their ability to put a, a tax-generating business in that location. I mean, do, do I get the idea that a, a city hall based solely on revenue would rather have a bar than a church? Yeah, I understand that. But it really is it keeping in the best interest of the local community? I think not. Yes, you're, you're correct. And, and the reason this was passed is just because there are cities like Salinas, like San Leandro, that are out there that are, are dominated by, by people sitting on the city council, the planning commission, uh, that have uh, either no appreciation or actual total disdain for religious yeah, it's, it's, and, the, it, it, and the great work that they're doing. It, it's, it, 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 sure, it sure smacks of hostility. Uh, from my viewpoint, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And again, this was a church that's been in downtown before there really wasn't even the notion of revitalizing downtown. And and the fact that they're insisting that the lower level be open to commercial businesses, uh, and yet in other examples in the area, they're not forcing that point, uh, just demonstrates that there's clearly uh, some hanky-panky something going on here that just doesn't doesn't smell good. Well, we appreciate the the efforts on behalf of New Harvest Christian Fellowship. And by the way, this is exactly what is in the wheelhouse of Pacific Justice Institute uh, that not only keeps them extraordinarily busy these days, but most importantly, standing on the front line to protect your rights as a church or as a person of faith. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, president, founder of the Pacific Justice Institute, for the update. Information on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. All right, 545, here's that update next on Traffic for you. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you are a Californian over the age of, oh, I don't know, 55, certainly in the baby boomer classification, you need to pay very close attention to what I'm about to discuss with our next guest. Um, While I know for some it seems as if that thing of the global pandemic is a million miles ago and some out there pretending as if it's all 
hunky-dory and life is going on as usual. And um, would say to that, well, tell that to the families, survivors, the 115,000 Americans that are now dead because of COVID-19, easily three to four times the annual death rate of flu, and that's just in three months. And sadly, the biggest victims, and the reason why on this program I have continuously harped, look, if you don't care about yourself, you want to get together in big crowds, run around without a mask and no social distancing and expose yourself to COVID-19, I guess it's a free country. But problem is when you come in contact with people that don't wish to lose their life to COVID-19 or contract it and then have to deal with what may be, who knows how long, the side effects. Uh, We're hearing some estimates that it could be years. And sadly, the biggest and most vulnerable group is our aging population. And um, it's very troubling when you look at what's going on, particularly in many of the nursing homes, not only across the nation, uh, as most notably we saw this bit break out um, in Washington State, uh, there at the Life Care Center in Seattle, and, and now seeing it all across California and the growing number of cases of not just the rate of people that are contracting COVID-19 and dying from COVID-19 in rest homes, nursing homes across California, but we're still is the absolute utter lack of apparent effort at even a minimal level to try and prevent its spread. Let's get some insights from somebody who understands what it's like to deal with not just the topic of aging, but also protecting and evaluating valuing life from both ends of the spectrum, from the cradle to the grave. He's Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, former California Commissioner on Aging. Brian, always good to have you with us. Wow. Um, You know, we certainly know that people across the nation have been ravaged by COVID-19, upwards of uh, nearly 2 million Americans, 115,000 have lost their lives. And sadly, the vast majority of that loss of life are the protected class, a class that we should do our best to look after, and that is our elders. What's going on? Well, that's right, Craig. I think it's a thank you for mentioning that. And I was years ago honored to, uh, it was not really <laughs> a paying position, but as a commissioner on aging, really got to see what happens with our aging community in California. But I was also on the board of examiners of California's nursing homes. And it appalled me then, years ago, what's appalling us now, but it's worse now. And that is many people view nursing homes as where you go to die. And while many of us may have relatives in nursing homes, it's not that common for people in nursing homes to have actively involved family. It just is not very common at all. And so that's really become a place of neglect. Now, as you mentioned with COVID, I think what's very clear is most people who do get this COVID illness are going to survive the experience. And some people aren't even going to know they have it. But that is not the case with seniors. And I want to emphasize now something that I have, and we've talked about this on KFAX, and your listeners know this. There is something wrong with our culture. 
And we have to recognize that. And if you're pro-life, you have to recognize that the decisions of January 22nd, 1973, the Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions that we talk about so often, did much, much greater damage than simply allow the killing of babies. This was a direct assault on medicine itself, the practice of medicine, which is at the heart of our civilization's regard for other human beings for 3,000 years since before the time of Christ. Doctors swore they will do no harm, that they will give no deadly medicine even if asked, and in like manner, never perform an abortion. That's the Hippocratic Oath. Well, that was violated, and what took place through Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton was an assault on the medical profession, and we should have seen greater outrage from that profession, but we didn't. And we should be outraged about what's happened, because what doctors now are are professional killers. Now, they are hit men. They're very specific in the case of abortion, literally. If you want to keep a child, you can keep that child. If you want to have a child killed, you hire a hitman, and he will kill your child. And you and I know, science knows, medicine has always known that's really a human baby. And the change now that we're seeing, we've come to accept that there has been great Violence done to the medical profession. So we live in a dystopia. Now, back to nursing homes and why this is important. In the state of California, and we've come to simply accept that, you can have a physician, and a physician can, even without you knowing, you don't have to know, can kill your grandma. Literally, legally, kill, not just give her pain medication. No intentionally end her life now using medicine to kill her and that's perfectly legal the medical profession you're living in a dystopia i wish it wasn't so strange but we have to realize the media is not giving you the full depth of what's happening doctors are legally allowed to kill now if you can legally kill a patient who is sick and vulnerable or dependent on you and quote, incurable, close quote, if that's legal, then what about the inadvertent deaths? You see, and that is literally what we're seeing with COVID, is that, as you pointed out, Greg, Greg, there is one audience in our whole nation, one group that is at the very highest likelihood of, of dying from COVID, and it's the very group that's not getting protected. Oddly enough, we know about Governor Cuomo. He's denying the implications, but they're obvious. We spoke three weeks ago, I believe it was, that we spoke about our own governor who did the same thing, and some of these cases in San Jose were revealed, but now it's gone quiet, and yet it's still happening. And what the media does is they don't give you all the information, and they expect you to come to certain conclusions. But the facts are there if you look into it, that those individuals in nursing homes 
are the most likely to die. And when we talk about, as, as has been presented, I hear presented all the time, well, we just need ventilators, and then it's going to be so much. No, you actually, you don't want to be on a ventilator unless it's the very last hope. Because once you're on a ventilator, weaning an individual off of a ventilator is very, very difficult. And so there needs to be very practical application of preventive measures taken at nursing homes, and those have not been happening, even in California. And the people who should be caring are not, and culturally, we've quietly just accepted it. And so it's been quietly accepted. Well, these are just inadvertent deaths. These are, this is just a group of people who are dying, and so, well, we expect that. Well, and you know, and as, as as I point out, my one of my concerns, and I'm I'm hoping to raise a little bit of ire, a little bit of awareness, um, amongst our peers, Brian, and that is to say this: that in twenty years, that's going to be you and me in those nursing homes, and that's so right. better be clear that as we have allowed abortion at one end of the spectrum, physician-assisted suicide at the other end of the spectrum. And now in that mushy middle, we're suddenly saying, you know, they've lived a good life. They're no longer contributing to the tax base. They're actually a drain on society because of the cost of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And so, you know, if they just peacefully pass on to their reward, what's wrong with that? And and, and that's the real danger here that I think... And I hope that people will will waken up to, and that is, you know, it might not matter a lot when you're thinking about this happening to Grandma that you never really liked anyway, but real soon it's going to be our turn, isn't it, Brian? Well, and really the cost is to our we literally I, I hate to put we have to, you are living in a dystopia. This is not it's not a metaphor that I'm saying that we have a dysfunctional society that has come to accept certain things, whatever the media tells you, well, you just go along, and we become sheep. And there is a place, again, I said it before, if you have a relative of any kind in a nursing home, be an advocate, because the people who should be advocates there, they're not. The profession that should be protecting life is no longer under that aegis, or no longer under that requirement to do what is right and good and just, and is more than willing to accept the killing. You need to understand the medical profession, and I've had doctors that tell me, and I recommend you do with your doctor, ask their stance on medical killing. Ask them. And usually, I say, well, well, that's not for medical killing. No, this is actually killing doctors. That's what suicide is. And if it's an assisted suicide, that means it's a third person. So it's, it's the physician involved in killing. And usually they'll say, well, I personally would do that, personally. But some people want that. It violates the very code of your profession. That's like a policeman, you know, asking a policeman, oh, well, uh, how do you feel about policemen doing shakedowns of, of local businesses? How, how, you know, they shake down local businesses for uh, extra protection. How do you feel about policemen pistol-whipping bystanders and, and using excessive force. Well, I personally wouldn't do it, but, you know, some cops do. I'm sorry. 
if you say that, yeah, some cops do, and you aren't doing something about it as a cop, you're a bad cop. And if you have a doctor who says, well, I personally wouldn't do that, the fact is is that the California Medical Association proclaims neutrality on killing vulnerable patients, using medicine to kill. They proclaim they're neutral. That's a specific commitment to embrace it, just as if, if a cop is on duty and his, and his buddy goes into the 7-Eleven and say, look, you know, you can have more trouble. Can you give me 50 bucks? I'll make sure you won't get any more trouble. Check the till. You got an extra 50 bucks you can give me, and I'll make sure you're protected. That's shakedown. That's an abuse of that position. That's a crime. And we wouldn't want cops putting up with it in other cops. And you shouldn't have doctors putting up with intentional medical killing. Again, that's what abortion is. And abortion is intentional medical killing. But we've come to accept it as a culture. And you know all the reasons. Oh, well, what about this? What about that? What about the heart cases? And Well, and sadly, so much of this, Brian, is, is I think, a result of the the slippery slope that we've been on for uh, so many years now, decades really, um, that has created this culture of death that we accept violence as a normal thing. Uh, we're no longer shocked when we see it. It's a means of entertainment, settling disputes, all of that. I mean, uh, you, you, you couple that with then violence on individuals, and I'm sorry, whether you're talking about putting somebody to sleep, quote-unquote, my air quotes here, through physician-assisted suicide or the taking of the life of a baby to even, quite frankly, malpractice of not looking after and protecting vulnerable seniors in California nursing homes during the height of this pandemic, all of it fits into that laissez-faire attitude toward life that really feeds into this culture of death. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. By the way, you can catch Brian's program. You know, he's got a radio show here on KFAX. He does indeed. Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. It's called Life Matters. And it really gets to the heart of many of the issues that we've touched on here today, but certainly farther in depth and um, taking a look at the, the news headlines of the day that you might not see in the mainstream media and give you some insights as to not just what's going on, but most importantly, how we need to be responding. Life Matters, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., right here on KFAX. Information available on Brian's good work, California Pro-Life Council online at californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. Oh, my goodness, 606. Boy, they're going to get the whip out here in a second. So let's uh, find out first what's going on from the traffic perspective over at the KFAX Traffic Center.